Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. And welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. I am here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, my friend. Goodness, we got a full house today. This is going to be an exciting conversation. Thank you, Todd. It's so great to be with you. And yes, people really going to get a treat today. Let me start with this idea. You know, you have heard this from me several times, but my interest is is in how we help students learn to learn and think about their thinking. And, you know, I've spent 20 years doing that myself. I have been a consultant and teacher to educators and even have gotten in front of administrators and decision makers, policy makers. And this question often comes that how do I help my struggling learner master or meet demands? When that question comes my way, I often like to flip it and say, how can we recognize that the learning is a struggle and not limited to only few with disability, but learning is a struggle because learning means learning something new that you already don't know. And so applying best practices in teaching can benefit all learners. And this is something I'm excited today to talk about. You know, you're familiar with this, uh, Todd, and uh, many of my lis- our listeners too, but I developed the uh, EXQ, which is a cloud-based executive function training tool, which is a curriculum directly coaches or trains the learners from middle school, high school, and college so that they develop the foundational skills in the area of executive function, including attention, focus, working memory, organization, mental flexibility. But the critical crux of the component that I like to address is the self-awareness. And this tool is designed to do that. And this is giving me a chance to talk to a lot of leaders in schools. So the question my, uh, my that kind of I like to ponder often is, are we helping a child or are we helping children? And how can we create a culture of self-awareness and self-help? So how can a student learns from the teacher and eventually learns how to teach to self? So my mission is to create a change in education and so that we can teach students how to take the baton that comes from the educators to them. So with that in mind, I'm very, very excited to have three uh, leaders from a school in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a, a Springer School uh, and Center uh, in Cincinnati. And these three highly you know, coveted educators are Dr. Marian Mulcahy, Mr. Eldridge Carr, Principal Eldridge Carr, and Carmen Mendoza. So Springer is the only school in the region that's devoted entirely to the education of children with learning disabilities. It goes from first grade to eighth. A stringer is a unique environment where children learn the tools and strategies to address their learning disabilities, to find a real success in school and throughout their adult lives. Through their outreach program, parents, professionals, and help are helped to develop understanding of learning disabilities and the most effective means to address them. So they are not just trying to educate children, they're also trying to bring some empowerment in the community they serve. So here's a little bit about our guest today. Dr. Mulcahy is a clinical psychologist. She is the center program coordinator and educates parents and professionals through the development of many courses. One of her popular courses is about educating the community about executive function. Principal Eldridge Carr is the Springer's principal. 
and he is responsible for the day-to-day school operations. He is certainly familiar with how to work with families, teachers, and school leaders, and he aspires to develop an outstanding program for students who attend the school. And uh, lastly, um, uh, we have Ms. Carmen Mendoza, who is a Springer's Director of Learning Programs and oversees curriculum and programming for students, parents, and communities. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's fantastic to have you. So Mary, you're a clinical psychologist and program coordinator and educator. So can you uh, start us off by what is your philosophy and how have you applied that to Springer to help teachers develop their understanding of executive function in order to support the need of students in your school? Well, I think most teachers now have some familiarity with executive function. It's been, you know, we've had multiple speakers in Cincinnati, and some of which I think have been on your program, like Dr. Russell Barkley, Thomas Brown, uh, Lynn Meltzer and her group. So teachers have some familiarity. Uh, The challenge becomes, how does one integrate these principles into the classroom in addition to all of the academic work that they're also responsible for uh, supplying. So that's a, a major challenge is helping teachers embed these strategies, techniques into the classroom, as well as helping parents to embed them in their procedures at home. So uh, let me backtrack a little bit. So can you just uh, one more time, and our listeners have heard it, but it may be a good idea to redefine executive function. And when you talk about this struggle about integrating strategies that are uh, executive function pro strategies, what are the pain points for the teachers? Why are they not successfully able to, and not just in your school, but generally, where do they find it most difficult? In terms of what is executive function, executive function can kind of be thought of, you know, there are many analogies. One is the air traffic controller. It functions as the executive who's making decisions, deciding what's most important, what are the steps to meet the goals that we have. And then also, as you were talking about self-awareness, you know, what kind of challenges, personal challenges does one have in this area? What kind of mistakes am I making? What am I doing well? So executive function really is about how we direct, manage, and organize ourselves, just get through our daily life, you know, when we get up in the morning until the time we go to bed at night. Challenges, well, in terms of education, well, Springer is a school where most of our youngsters are here, not only because they have a learning disability, but also because the, the executive function piece is a greater challenge for them, maybe than for other students. So while strategies that the general education teacher has in the community may work perfectly well for the typical youngster, our kids tend to need more exposure, more practice, more rehearsal with those kind of strategies, even something as simple as, you know, how do you enter the classroom and get ready for the day? Yeah, and such a great example. People might dismiss the complexity involved in entering the classroom and, you know, bringing your mindset as well as attention to dive into the activity that teacher might have planned. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that. So, Carmen, You are the director of learning programs as well as curriculum and kind of seeing this translate into the classroom. So teacher inculcate. There are certainly a variety of approaches 
to working with children with executive functioning challenges. What kind of principle went went through the decision making when you have finally probably created a curriculum for Springer or defined its approach? Well, I, I think what you're asking is how we integrate that into our program from beginning of the day to the end of the day. And I would say kind of piggybacking on what Marianne said earlier, we've had a lot of speakers that have come to Springer and educate our staff about executive function. And I think our teachers are always evaluating as they're teaching what are the difficulties or what are the the strength areas that children are having as they're learning. And so within our academic curriculum, we're always trying to embed and work on making the executive function processes strong for every student that's in front of us. That's great. So can we backtrack a little bit? You and I have talked about this. You have incredible experience. And before we uh, systematically and officially began to talk about executive function, what was the typical approach to bringing a new curriculum or approach to teaching? And how does that differ from the way uh, executive function centric approach needs to be? I would say that at Springer, we've been aware of executive function. And even before we started using the term executive function, we were always tuned into what attentional needs were demanded of curriculum. And so as we integrate curriculum, we're always thinking about how how it's embedded and how we roll out curriculum. It's not been something that we all of a sudden now have a template that, that we've run our curriculum through. It's something that's that's been a part of any type of curriculum selection and what are the demands on the student and how are we going to organize that and how are we going to how are we going to directly tre- teach any executive function skills that are necessary to learn the curriculum got it so let me ask eldridge you know springer is a place as you have mentioned that has a pro ef culture what strategic steps have been taken by the school's leadership to cultivate and promote that culture with each constituent group, uh, so to speak? Yeah, thanks for the question. I think that this is a really important one and really lies at the heart um, of what any school wants to do. So for us, the process begins with a firm understanding of who we are and what we'll aim to do with our students and our family. And, And that goes into forming a clear identity for ourselves. And that is reflected through our mission and our core values that trickle down into decision making processes, conversations, prioritizing what the idea of the school is going to be and what we're going to be doing. So if you think about being a pro EF school or a school that is very concerned with the EF functioning or the executive functioning of the students, it will filter down if the initial roots of the organization are uh, cultivated really, really well. So once you're in that spot and the leadership is in that spot and the community kind of rallies around the idea of who we are and what we're going to be, discussions around curriculum, classroom management, schedules, all of these become much, much easier. And you'll see this domino effect where, sure enough, culture will latch on and it will be part of the consciousness when teachers go to teach or maybe a speech and language pathologist starts to have a conversation with a teacher, or maybe even in a sense that uh, behavioral management or classroom management techniques are discussed between a school counselor and the rest of the staff. That in turn then helps support the students and families, because if it's at the the forefront of the consciousness for the educators in the building, it's certainly going to be at the forefront of the consciousness for the students. So we'll start to embed uh, vocabulary in various language that will help the student be more metacognitive 
we'll start to balance that critical idea of metacognition and learning about our learning against the content objectives that the school will naturally have. And then, of course, that then filters down into discussions that we'll have with families at conferences, uh, various back-to-school nights or open houses, or even just those side conversations that we might have with students about their day that take place very frequently between our staff and our families that are so concerned about their students flourishing while they're at Springer and afterwards. Wonderful. So one of the things that strikes me is this, you're embedding this idea that there's a a lot of conversation and relationship built between the, the professionals, between the educators who are serving the needs of the students. And you also are emphasizing a lot of making approach transparent, which is always very, very powerful and helpful. If you can summarize for me, what do you think are the three markers of such pro uh, EF culture then? Yeah, I think that's one I would say is having a firm understanding that is uniform across the entire organization. That, that to me is the first and foremost. There's so many variations on executive functioning or interpretations of executive functioning that the school needs to work very, very hard to have consistency along those lines. That, that to me, is first and foremost. So which um, executive function, as Barclay described there, uh, in one of his papers, he summarized 32 approaches or 30 days, 32 ways of defining. But which kind of a definition that you as a school have adopted and accepted as a way to define and then manage it with respect to executive function? This is Carmen. I was going to pop in on this one and just mention that Lynn Meltzer's work, we tend to um, use that in our language and in our conversation with parents and with students. She most recently was a guest here in Cincinnati for us in April, and we've been utilizing her book that she wrote several years ago about promoting an EF culture in the classroom. And so that's something that we integrate into our new staff training and any conversations that we have as a staff. Wonderful. Thank you for clarifying that. And we have had Lynn on on the show, so people can refer to that podcast as well. So sorry, Eldridge, if you can continue, what are the uh, two other markers that indicate a pro-EF culture when you are looking at leading your school? Good. So I think if at first you have a clear understanding across the organization within the community about what that is, I think the second key step is would be an acceptance that students are going to come with any varying levels of executive functioning skills. If there is one standard that we want our students either to achieve or meet or we expect for them to come in with, that can be really, really difficult. So a really healthy or pro-EF culture is going to be able to establish and say that there is some type of range in which students are going to come into and that success may be relative for lots of our students. And there's got to be an acceptance of that idea. If there's not an acceptance of that idea, you may have uh, really high expectations and, and may never actually be able to meet those with lots of the students and lots of the families. Uh, sorry, sure. if I can interject, uh, I really love this idea. You are one of those principals who has explicitly stated as a philosophy and a leadership uh, value, which I really care about. What I often find when I do uh, teacher education training and even parent education training, that this acceptance is not made transparent, not saying that they deny uh, such things exist, that uh, students have varying degree of executive function proficiency when they enter uh, a particular grade. So within that grade, you have ranges of skill set. But I think when the school accepts that we and verbalizes that and identifies that and then shares that understanding to their constituents, it is such a powerful thing because you're empowering 
every member to say it's okay if you're not skilled and it's okay if you are much more skilled than the others, we have the way to support it. So thank you for making that transparent. It's a really valuable asset. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That's a very high compliment coming from you. And it's something that we strive to do uh, here at Spring for sure. I think the last piece that I would say about this would be open and clear communication around um, goals and uh, observations and success and sometimes that hard conversation around failure. We have to be communicating within ourselves as professionals within the school, but also with our families. Some of the most fruitful conversations, I think, sometimes are the hardest conversations that we have because that sets the right tone and, and puts everyone on the right footing with one another to really help the child. And those conversations are oftentimes difficult, but they're also very much rooted in the idea that everybody around the table has the same goal and ambition for the child. And that's really to help them uh, with their learning disabilities. And sometimes that involves, you know, tough executive functioning skills. And that's lovely. I mean, I can just get a a sensation of how warm and collaborative community you all have. Uh, Already, uh, I get a feeling for that. So thank you for doing that for our children, because these are special children who, for for whom learning doesn't come that easy. Let me get to Mary, as a psychologist, how do you empower the teachers to identify executive function weaknesses? And what is your protocol and process of determining the need in the classroom? Well, uh, with our students, it starts before they come to the school because uh, this is a a private school. So there's an admissions process that Carmen's very uh, heavily involved in. And so we collect quite a lot of information on our students. There's a psychoeducational evaluation that's usually done by an outside psychologist. We might have reports from speech-language pathologists, occupational therapists if the child's in occupational therapy, school records, previous reports from previous placements. So you kind of develop a whole picture of, you know, what's this child's success? Where is this child successful? And where are the challenges? And just like in academics, uh, so with the executive function pieces, there'll be some pieces that our youngsters are quite skilled at. And then there are some perhaps that are lagging. You know, our thought here, and I think in general in the community in terms of executive function, is that these skills have to be specifically taught. And so many of our students, again, needed more, needed the steps broken down more for them, and they needed to be repeated more often, and careful thought uh, taken or analysis of kind of where's, if there's a process, where is it breaking down? And that it's not the student's fault. You know, these are skills that must be taught, and this this skill is going to have to be taught in a different way, perhaps for you than for someone else. And again, it isn't the student's fault. It's not the parent's fault. It's not the previous school's fault. It's just that it has to be done in a different way. So that's kind of part of the entry into Springer is having this whole picture of the student. Thank you for explaining that. I think what's another striking thing that most listeners may not be familiar with, that when there's a specialized school, the school actually uh, has created an atmosphere where they are openly asking and inviting information that will kind of encouraging parents to actually disclose 
information that may not be speaking favorably about a student. Uh, I mean, when I say that, that's actually weaknesses. And again, my my fundamental belief is who doesn't have weaknesses? And if you're a learner, the learning weakness means you haven't learned how to learn yet, but that's your job. So, uh, and the second thing that, um, again, uh, I, I love what you identified for our listeners is that the attention needs to be paid to this fact that all skills that are a challenge need to be taught specifically and in a different way for different child. And that is what schools like yours specialize. And that doesn't happen in ordinary environment because this point may not be paid attention to. So with that, can you, do you mind walking us through the top three skills, if you may even generalize that way, that often come up in in children that you serve that requires this specific way of teaching? Well, I, I guess if I could talk, I guess I could call them like the top three concerns maybe that get children sure. uh, into our school building. Well, usually one that is close uh, is of concern to most parents and teachers is an issue with homework. So either fighting over homework, doing the homework, forgetting to turn it in, or the book doesn't come home to begin with. So you know that organizational skill. So homework's usually a big one. And then another one is uh, this tendency to perhaps make what we call silly mistakes so that it's usually not the large, huge pieces that cause these children trouble. It's the inconsistencies from day to day. So one day something, you know, they've got their addition math facts down pat and tomorrow you give the same kind of assessment and suddenly it's gone. So the inconsistent performance, I think, from day to day, which, you know, is part of a executive function challenge and attention challenge. And then I think the other piece is also perhaps the youngsters frustration with their progress and seeing that they are struggling when perhaps their peers are not in certain areas. And certainly with parents being incredibly concerned about the perhaps lack of academic progress in certain areas, particularly in reading. So those are usually the kind of, I guess, top three that sort of get children uh, or parents to begin to to look in Springer's direction in terms of serving their youngster. Thank you, Mary. And and you kind of nailed this, uh, that uh, one of the problems about executive function profile or the way it uh, demonstrates its, its ugly head is it's so casual. Like somebody who doesn't uh, or shows problems with silly mistakes, we will not immediately equate it to executive function. So thank you for pointing that out. And this is the invaluable uh, thing that we all as a culture, as a community, as a nation maybe need to understand that inconsistency is a mark of uh, executive function proficiency and uh, having inconsistency cannot be trained or treated with verbal guidance. It has to be a process specific learning. So that brings me to Carmen. Carmen, you have uh, this uh, window into the students as they come uh, through the door and you are deciding and determining uh, what, uh, if the student is appropriate fit for the school. How might uh, uh, your school's approach, uh, how might your school approach uh, a child that needs support and growth in their emotional regulation? Because as Mary was saying, I'm not able to handle frustrations that go along with difficulty in learning is one of the reasons that things can fall apart for a learner. Absolutely. Learning is emotional for most of us. There's an emotional response when learning comes easy and there's an emotional response when learning is hard. 
some of our students have a hard time regulating their emotions. What is a typical emotion might be magnified for them or takes them longer to cool down than it might other students. And so it, you can't separate emotion from learning. So as we're looking at students that, that would be a great fit for our program, you have to look at that. And um, oftentimes, and I know as professionals at Springer, we talk about students that come to us wounded or um, having gone through trauma in some way. And certainly that that's a part of their learning profile. And so it is something that, that we're aware of. And I think that's really the first step. A lot of times when students come into our environment, that emotion is better regulated because things are um, stepped out for them in such a way that makes it easier for them to handle. And there's so much research out there that talks about this idea that students with learning disabilities, when they are grouped together and they're learning with others who also have learning difficulty, they tend to have better experience. And as you just pointed out, that better experience is to kind of know and discover that I am not the odd one and learning being difficult does not mean I will not learn. It is just something that I need to work around. Wonderful. (laughs) One more thing about that emotional regulation that I think often is when we talk about executive function, it takes a while to establish this relationship between cognitive aspects of thinking about your skills and abilities to reach goal versus the emotional aspect of thinking and skill set to achieve goals. And people think that emotions and behaviors are somehow not related. So again, you weaving that into your not just assessment, but making that as a priority to support the growth of your children is a remarkable plan put in place and probably a good one for all the students who are um, experiencing such difficulties. So Eldridge, what information is helpful for parents or what steps can they take to support the school who has a pro-EF culture itself? Yeah, I think that this is a kind of a really important aspect in the sense that so much of uh, the conversation could take place around students, but parents play such a large role in partnering with schools to make sure that the overall plan for the child is very, very effective. So the first thing I would say, I, I don't think will be new to anyone or any of your listeners, but there has to be a deep relationship between the school and the family. The family has to feel comfortable coming into the school, speaking with the staff and the school leadership and being open and honest about the feedback about you know the child's success. There's oftentimes where a child might present in a certain way at the school and then go home and melt. That something that happened over the course of the school day was was held in, and you know they get in the car and it just wasn't working. Um, I would also extend that out to say that it's also about fatigue. I think there's something that we often want to know at our school is how tired is the child. It's a great indicator of how much work the child is putting in from a cognitive standpoint to be successful in school, and how much that might indicate to us that we need to continue to differentiate. And along those lines, I think that. It's nearly impossible to think that executive functioning will only be worked on at school, that there has to be a pairing between families and home life and the school. Strategies that are being implemented at the school need to be mirrored or echoed at home and vice versa. The most success we have with our families and our students is when everybody is on the same page, whether that's around using checklists, being uh, able to preview upcoming events to work with uh, kind of flexible thinking. But the, the, the deeper and stronger that relationship is between the school and the family and also the student, 
the, the, that's where you're going to have the most success with, with these kids. Fantastic. I'm so enthralled by our discussion and really I'm so glad I'm doing this joint interview because you're really, all three of you are painting this picture of what goes into um, considering the child's success and child without a family life is really not a child. And another important point that you pointed out, just like Mary and, and Carmen were talking about this executive function Using executive function, I like to describe it as gas in in the car. More you use it, it, less it becomes, less available it is. So somewhere you need to stop and fill the gas tank again. And that, you know, when you're exposed to intense, having to self-regulate cannot can be exhausting for a child. So child's behaviors may be re- remarkably different at home. Do you all have any thought about the general uh, well-being of the family that often gets ignored or not ignored, but gets um, becomes a even a critical element when managing a child with learning difficulties or disabilities. Do you have any insight about that? Uh, I'll throw this out to all three of you, if you don't mind sharing some ideas. Yeah, I think oftentimes when we see families that first come to us and students that first come to us, it's a real struggle everywhere. I think that, you know, we don't get a lot of students where everything is going just fine, whether that be at school or at home. So, when we can finally get a child into our environment and we can get them in a place where they feel understood, they feel less scared, they feel willing to accept some of the challenges that they're going to have for a long, long time, that can actually help uh, temper the home life. That emphasis between the two can't be made strong enough. And in the same way, one of our real goals as well is not only to help the child be better informed about their own learning, but to also help the family understand their child and help the family understand their, the child's learning profile. The better they can do that, sometimes we see a growth in empathy and patience. It's the parent or the family that can't really understand or fathom why a child is behaving the way they are. And then all of a sudden comes to an understanding and that relieves them from a sense of pressure or guilt. And we can really change a lot of families in that respect. That's a really important part for us is to try and help the entire family dynamic uh, improve through some of our work. And I think, uh, this is Marianne, I think one of the major reliefs that happen for families when they come to Springer is that they have a sense that they no longer have to be teaching reading at home after school. They're not teaching writing at home after school. They're not teaching math. It's almost like some children are in school during the day and then the parent, they come home to the parent and they're homeschooled at night. So when you come to Springer, the prof- these are professionals here who are trained specifically in these specialized interventions, and you can be a parent. You can do fun things in the evening with your child. You can relax. Uh, there's just this incredible sense initially, I think, of what I've observed and experienced myself is that there's just this lifting of a burden and a sense that if you have a concern, there are people here that you can talk to, you know, that you have a partner. Uh, there's almost like there's another there's another person who's in the boat with you, you know, when you're trying to ride some of these waves. And I think that's a huge uh, relief for many families. And then I would add to this is Carmen. I would add too that the child themselves, when they um, are participating in our program here at Springer, begin to go home and use the word strategy or use the words, um, I'm thinking about how I'm going to best approach this. And they begin to share that with their parents. And then they 
as parents begin to understand that their child has a different approach and that they can talk with the teachers at the school about that. And then that helps them approach things differently at home, whether it be, you know, it's really helpful for me to understand that soccer's coming up, but I want to know about it the day before it comes up. Those kinds of conversations began to organically happen at home. And sometimes it's the child leading those conversations. So it's, it's kind of an approach of all kinds of different things that helps the parents understand executive function. Yeah, that's really powerful. I think this shift where they begin to strategize, they begin to take ownership of their own skills. Mary, what you said about having actually an opportunity to be simply be a parent and not a teacher who's having a second school at home, which is devastating. And uh, mind you, not many people, parents are good at it and they're not supposed to. So, and, and as you said, Eldridge, that there's a, such a release of pressure and guilt and, and such a powerful emotional state to create uh, for the child who then can actually feel like I belong to a larger community and I'm not alone and there's hope for me. So you're talking about building hope, which is fantastic. So Eldridge, this question is for you. Would you mind describing some specific examples of uh, pedagogical techniques or activities that your school uses to support students with executive functioning? Yeah, I'm happy to go through a few. Some of these may be pretty basic, so please tell me if you want me to get more specific. But I'm going to start at very much in the school design process. When it comes to scheduling and creating schedules for students, uh, one thing I think you would find with our environment is that the schedules are very, very consistent. We want to try and get students into a spot where they don't have to memorize a six-day rotation when it comes to the schedule. We want them going to math at the same time or having snack at the same time. And that allows them to build a routine. And that routine then in turn will help create habits. Um, And those habits are really what we're looking for when it comes to promoting a lot of these executive functioning skills. Right along with that, If there is for some reason going to be a change or something new for the child, we do a lot of previewing within our classrooms. Our teachers do a lot of talking about what's going to come up next or what might be coming up a week from now or how we might approach something if this circumstance would arise. So those two really, to me, go hand in hand, right? Trying to create some types of routines for our students to really uh, find success in. And then also at the same time, undoubtedly schools are schools and things are going to change and being able to preview with the students. And that helps from any number of different angles from, you know, basic logistics to uh, helping students in their emotional state. If you're looking for something that is very kind of grassroots and in the classrooms, I can talk about lists and flow charts and strategy. Uh, Give us one uh, one or two examples of that. I think that will be great as well. Yeah, so one example that I could give you would be for the writing process. For students that are struggling with executive functioning skills, the writing process can be very, very difficult, brutal in some respects. So we have checklists that help students begin the process and organize their steps. And these checklists sometimes are very, very small. Everything to here's how you set up your paper, here's where your name would go, and then here's where the first sentence would begin on the page to here's what the first sentence would be about, to, all right, that first sentence is going to be supported by these two next ideas. Um, So our checklists are varied from time to time, but using those in the writing process would be a good example of where we see that on a very concrete level with our our students. So do you mind addressing this issue that I can see some educators pushing back because they might feel that this is babying the student? What's the difference between this being a 
pro-executive function approach versus simply compensating for the difficulties the students have? And I know the answer, but I would love for you to (laughs) share that. So from my perspective, there's a difference between babying students and coddling students, which would be doing things for them and which they can do for themselves. The students that we're talking about can't necessarily do these things from them for themselves yet. And the goal is to try and model for them and get them into a, a point in which they can start to do these things for themselves. And once they can, then you start to wean off of the strategies and you test that. Sometimes you'll pull a strategy back and the child won't have as much success. And maybe you need to re-implement that strategy or find one that is less intrusive to the learning environment that'll help them succeed. But there is a big difference between babying and coddling students and helping them do things that they just can't do quite yet. Oftentimes, we also talk about strategies that are developmentally appropriate for our students. My expectations and the strategies that we would implement for our first or second graders certainly would be very different than the strategies that we would try and implement for our seventh and eighth grade students. But that, that is a, a tough challenge that I often see when I discuss kind of our school and our environment with other teachers is this reluctance or not even a reluctance, but knowing where the line is between helping children and enabling children. Um, and I think that there's a big difference between those two pieces. That's great. And I I wonder if, Mary, you have some thoughts about uh, knowing where that line is and how can teachers develop this acumen to distinguish when where they are coddling versus where they are enabling or facilitating the skill development? Well, I think uh, the facilitating piece is based on where the students' challenges are. And again, you know, Springer is a school with kids who have diagnosed disabilities in some areas. And so the strategies are more about teaching. This isn't a school where a teacher will say to a student, well, you should have learned that last year. If the student isn't demonstrating the skill, it hasn't been taught to mastery. And part of the individualized approach, and you know, because it's a small teacher to student ratio, is if a student doesn't demonstrate something, well, then you back up and you break it down for them, and then you proceed forward. Enabling, I don't see too much of here because the purpose is for these students to gain independence. Many of our students are here for an average of just three years. Um, Some are here longer, but you know, our goal is to have a confident learner who understands their own learning challenges and what works for them, you know, who can discuss how many days in advance I need to start studying for a test. Or I need to get my mom to ask me some questions that I've written down about the science chapter to to be ready for the test. So I think when you work cooperatively with a student and with the family, you have a better chance at kind of arriving at the sweet spot in terms of where to start. Because this is, it's a learning process for the teacher and for the school as well, as you know, where to start with this child. And they'll usually let you know if uh, something is too easy. And so that's great. And we'll look at the quality of the work and say, yeah, you know, you're right. You've got this. So let's move on to this. And, you know, just in a step-by-step fashion, in a way that makes the child feel confident and in the parents as well. Carmen, do you want to add a few things about this? I was just in my mind um, thinking about it's really about knowing that child 
And it's about having that understanding. And I think the language of finding that sweet spot is, is always something as parents and as teachers, we don't want something to be too easy, but yet we don't want something to be too hard. And then the other thing I would add is that learning a strategy about how to approach something like a writing task that Eldridge mentioned, the whole goal is to externally provide that structure so that internally they are, they are creating that structure themselves one day and being independent at that process. And so as we state that in lots of lessons that we have here at Springer, it's, it can be a slow process and sometimes for others, a quicker process to make um, those strategies internal and embedded and into our learners. So, yeah, no, that really makes sense. And I think you both, all three of you are really talking about having sensitivity and um, reserving the right as a teacher and educator to provide certain leeway uh, with full understanding that you you are not doing that because uh, you have no regard for students' uh, ability to develop skill, but rather it's very much done with that in mind. And coddling to me is really saying that we just need to get through this. So let me see what I can do to uh, help so that you can do it. And if you're resisting, that's because it's going to create friction for both of us. So why don't we just circumvent? So that's not at all uh, what specialized approach uh, that you are talking about is creating for the students. So I really think that adds value. So let me kind of uh, bring our conversation to the end here. This is a philosophical question. So this is always uh, concerns me or has fascinated me that, you know, uh, special education is so rich with uh, a deep understanding of process of learning as well as sure shot methodologies that work. But regular education somehow doesn't necessarily use those strategies. Uh, granted, it does take a little bit more effort if we focus on observing students using strategies and inculcating them systematically. But why is it so hard to apply these best practices in special education to regular education? Any thoughts about that? <laughs> I'll be happy to field this. You know, I certainly hope this comes across in a way that is supportive of all educators and all practitioners, because I think that there there is a time and a place and a role for all types of schools. But I think that sheer size is a real challenge, right? We can do what we can do in our environment simply because of the ratios that we have. Our ratios are very small. We float somewhere between one to five to one to seven in our classrooms. And that's a large part of our program. We have lots of time to have conversations about students. We make a lot of time to have conversations about students. We know our children's learning profiles very, very intimately. We know our families very, very well. And there has to be something to be said for just the sheer size and scope of, uh, you know, what some teachers have to, to do. And, and uh, hats off to all of them that are in environments that aren't like ours. I can only imagine what that must be like to want to do some things and to know students in a certain way and at the same time be tackling class sizes that are in the, the upper 20s and low 30s. So I think that that would be the first place that I would start with this conversation is that sheer size and scope is a significant challenge for implementing some of the practices that we do. Yeah, that does make sense. And my, I also feel extremely compassionate for all the educators who are doing this job, which is so, so hard. I mean, it's it's a rarity to have a homogenous classroom where all children are skilled equally and invested in learning equally and talented equally. So it's just yeah. a dream. And that's just not a reality, right? Correct. <laughs> 
And I'm really fascinated by how they do make things happen. However, I do think uh, like few the strategies that you mentioned, even talking about the future and helping the students connect with their future selves can add incredible value to getting the student to be, be more engaged in learning or taking charge of their learning. And, and uh, that doesn't that that is not limited to or limited by sheer size or scope of their teaching. So maybe there's some opportunity that they can take advantage as well. Or maybe we need to have a greater dialogue about what are their challenges that make them not take advantage of those uh, opportunities. So in closing, I'm going to throw these questions at all three of you. Uh, You have been real troopers. You know, I always uh, wonder about our own executive function. And in order to manage and help people to achieve goals, we need to be, as you said time and again, You all are deeply aware of each student's strengths and weaknesses, and you are maneuvering, strategizing, and guiding teachers. So how would you describe your own executive function, and how has that informed your approach to education in general? From my perspective, it was the philosophy, my philosophy is that indeed these these skills, these behaviors are taught, you know, how to be organized, et cetera. And uh, having someone, a teacher along the way, you know, who assisted in that, someone who taught you how to break down that fourth grade, you know, chapter in science and study the terms, you know, what, use flashcards, use something like that. But, and those are things that teachers can do, but having somebody break that down or having someone talk with you about uh, that you got, that you became incredibly angry about a grade that you received and, you know, kind of where's that coming from? What do you think went wrong with that? And, you know, it's not the end of the world to get a C. Um, Nobody's died from failing a a math test in the fourth grade. And so, you know, kind of also helping myself as a learner (laughs) deal with those kind of disappointments uh, uh, along the way. Uh, But just to help kids uh, take risks, because that's how we learn. Right. And this is Carmen. I was just going to add to that, that I think a lot of people have very intuitive and strong executive function skills. Not everybody does, but some people do. And when a challenge is in front of you, I think it's an opportunity to learn. And so it may, your first hard class might not be until high school. Everything's been easy up until that point. And all of a sudden you have to think about how you're going to approach a task, how you're going to organize yourself, how you're going to pull out the salient information. And if there's someone along the way that can help with that process, that is a really a big benefit to the learner. And I think at Springer, the one thing that's different is that we're anticipating that and we're seeing that in our students early instead of uh, a sink or swim kind of mantra. But I think for a lot of people, as they become metacognitive about their own executive function, they're learning it by chance as they're going through their educational programming. One quick question, Carmen. So are you saying that your own metacognitive skills, you stumbled upon them through self-discovery and now you see the benefit of teaching it explicitly? I think for me that that that's how I would state it. Yes, there were certain courses in high school that were hard. There's certain courses that were hard in college for me. I think the learning never ends. I think as I um, began working at Springer and and was exposed to different speakers and different books, it it causes you to think and reflect on your own learning. It's not unusual 
partner to say, oh gosh, can I see that? That really helps me. Or can you state that again? Like we're aware of our own learning in our environment because we are analyzing our own learners all the time. <laughs> so absolutely. Yes. My story is probably a little different and shout out to Independence Public Schools right outside of Cleveland. Um, this is actually a relatively vivid memory for me. I remember my parents coming home from a conference with my sixth grade science teacher, Mrs. Noyce, who basically told my parents that I was doing just fine academically, but I was never going to be able to reach my optimal potential unless I'd learned some study skills. Oh, um, God. And, I, <laughs> and how I learned how to plan appropriately and organize appropriately. And I don't know how much my teachers talked at the time, but it seemed like every classroom I went into for the next 10 years, everybody was telling me the exact same thing. So from Mrs. Noyce um, all the way up to Mr. McGinnis, my social studies teacher, and Mr. Walchanowitz, my English teacher and soccer coach, um, this is something that just carried with me all the way through 12th grade. Um, and by the time I got to college, I really had been able to put together a lot of the executive functioning skills that I needed and really feel lucky to uh, have landed where I did. So that's kind of my story, but a little bit different that I didn't need so much self-discovery because I had a lot of really great teachers and supportive parents looking out for me along this line. And you sounds like you were open to that feedback and didn't get hostile. <laughs> no, that was good. I'm glad, I, I'm glad I sound like that now because I'm not exactly sure that was always the case. So <laughs> I, I, I feel bad for some of those teachers along the way, but uh, they did a good job. And maybe a shout out on your podcast will, will make some amends. <laughs> well, it has been nothing but joy talking to three of you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Eldridge. And thank you, Carmen, for being on this podcast. It, wow. it, you have given us a wealth of information and really a framework uh, that actually leads to success. So you have set the stage for many, many educators to maybe kind of pull up those details and de uh, deploy them for themselves. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Wow, what a great conversation. Unfortunately, it's all the time we have for today. If you know of anyone who might benefit from listening to today's conversation, we would be grateful if you would kindly forward it to them. So on behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, today's wonderful guest from Springer School, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thanks for listening today, and we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.